Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. So today I have Charlie Dewberry to talk to me about the big picture of the science curriculum at Gutenberg College. Welcome, Charlie. Yeah, well, thanks, Gil. Glad to be here. I wanted to have you back to do a general science discussion after our podcast that we did a while back on Lucretius, because there were a couple of things that you said that I, I think we'll get to in the course of our discussion here that was possibly surprising to folks, given modern conceptions of science. And so I wanted an opportunity for us to talk about the big picture without necessarily referencing any particular book. Specifically, one question that I would like to get to is at one point during that discussion, you said that there's no such thing as facts. There's just Mm -hmm. the lenses through which you see the world. So that is possibly very startling for folks, and I want to talk about that possibly at the end, but I want to give you the opportunity to talk about the curriculum in general, and we've talked about how probably the best way to approach that is to work through a little bit of your biography, since you've been thinking about these ideas for a long time, and talk about the difference between the modern conception of science and how that has changed, in your view, from a better way, or how that's different from a better way to do science. So I'll just let you present what you want, and then we'll talk about any questions that I think folks might have when you're done doing that. Okay, well, thanks, Gil. Well, um, I've always been interested in science and always wanted to do science since I was very young. For second grade, I knew I kind of wanted to work with fish and stream ecology. So um, my whole education was really just focused primarily on that. And I can remember at times wondering, why am I doing these humanities? Why am I doing this stuff? I know what I want to do. I just need to specialize I just need to work on my specialty. That's what I ought to be doing. And as I went through primary and secondary school and then on to a master's degree, I was just cruising along. Everything was great, and I had my picture of exactly where it was going. And I finished Michigan State with a master's degree in stream ecology, and I was headed to Oregon State to do a PhD in stream ecology. And of course, I knew what science was. Science is testing hypotheses. You set up the experiment, you run it, then you take your data and you do the statistics on it, and the statistics tells you whether you should accept that hypothesis or not. And then you basically write it up. And so hypotheses are really dealing with facts. Well, anyway, on my way out to Oregon to start my Ph.D., I had four or five books I had just picked up to read coming across the country and then obviously stopping in the Rockies to do a little fishing and looking at Yellowstone. Anyway, one of the books I picked up was a book by Michael Polanyi called Personal Knowledge. 
Don't ask me why I picked it up. It's the first philosophy book I'm sure I ever cracked to open. And anyway, the first thing I realized, I could barely read it. But what I did realize is he had destroyed everything I'd ever been taught about what science was and how to do it. And here I am on my way to start a PhD, and I don't have the slightest idea what science is or how to do it anymore. So anyway, I worked. I was working on that question of how I'm going to figure out now what I think science is in the context of my PhD program. And I got to the end, and basically the short version of it is my advisor, who I'd known since high school, he said, well, Charlie, the problem here is you can't do philosophy and science. You got to pick one. You can't do both. And you're trying to do both. And it's just not going to work. So anyway, I decided I wanted to do the philosophy and to figure that out. So before we talk more about the idea of what it means to do philosophy as you're doing science, can you back up a little bit and talk about what were some of the things that Polanyi was saying that you think totally destroyed that picture that you had of what science was? Well, the first part was the idea that facts aren't objective that are just out there, that are just done to you. I mean, you know, in the view of a scientist, when you make an observation, everybody's going to make the same observation if you're following the same method. Uh So everybody sees the same thing. That fact is objective. It's just done to you. Mm -hmm. The method ensures that your biases don't get in the way because you're just measuring things. You're just making very basic, observations and measurements and those aren't going to differ right so nowadays it feels like there's a a large cultural discussion of things like confirmation bias and various other kinds of recognitions of the fact that human beings are limited and somewhat biased in their picture was the belief that you could observe things objectively. Was that a very simplistic picture? Do you think that it was very subtle and that Polanyi was chasing that subtlety all the way down, as it were? Well, in the, in the traditional view of science, your mind is passive. The information just comes in. The sensations just hit your retinas and everything's passive. His point is, No, on the contrary, your mind is very active. And so that's the fundamental distinction, is your mind is affecting what you see. So I'll give you an example. I taught at Yellowstone Institute for a little while, and one summer day we were out there, and all of a sudden one of those massive thunderstorms rolled over the Rockies. And so here we are in the middle of the day, and there's this horrific thunderstorm that's just, I mean, we can see it on the ridges next to us. And I said to the students, you know, you realize that lightning can go from the ground to the air. 
And so for the first time in their lives, virtually everybody in the class saw lightning go from the ground to the air. But on the other hand, it was interesting. A few people couldn't see it. Right. So the point was, everybody had always just seen lightning go from the air to the ground. And Polanyi's point is, you're going to see what you expect to see. Unless you either imagine a different scenario or somebody like me there suggests that, hmm, maybe there's another way to look at it. And then all of a sudden, you see something different. Well, that right there is just a flat-out critique of the idea there's objective facts. Yeah. So all facts are already embedded in your worldview of what you expect because— well, your worldview is true. I mean, all your beliefs are true. Yeah. So you're always going to see the world initially um, given your lens. So yeah. you're always going to try to make everything fit within your lens. Yeah. Let me clarify a couple of things because you said a bunch of stuff and I'm following you, but I just <laughs> want to make sure that the folks who are listening can follow. So first, you just said, your beliefs are true, and that's from the perspective of the observer, right? Mm -hmm. I believe stuff because that's what I think is right. Mm -hmm. That doesn't tell me whether it is or not, but my assumption is that it's right. Mm -hmm. So the issue is then, like you were saying, you need somebody to come along and suggest some other possibility or someone needs to imagine some other possibility Mm -hmm. for them to get around those assumptions Mm -hmm. and be able to start to ask the question or pay attention in a different way so that they can interact with what's going on. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is sometimes when people talk about objective facts, what they mean is there's something real in the world right? That is true regardless of any person's experience of that thing. I would like you to talk about that idea because I think in general as Christians, we believe that there is objective reality. And so I want you to talk about the difference between what I think you've been calling in this discussion an objective fact versus Mm -hmm. an objective reality. Okay. Well, objective reality is just simply the way the world really is. Now, I don't really know how the world really is all the way down and completely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my senses are like a language speaking to me. Mm -hmm. They're giving me clues Mm -hmm. about what's true and not true. So I'm using that language in my senses and my experience to basically come to a a better understanding of what reality really is. Ultimately, I would argue, we don't get there. (laughs) Yeah. But we make progress. Yes. So this brings in... One of our favorite authors around here at Gutenberg, who's Thomas Reed, Mm -hmm. who is a Scottish philosopher in the 18th century. And some of the things you're saying also have echoes of Kant, who is a continental philosopher a little Mm -hmm. bit later, but around the same time. 
And one thing that I want to clarify, I think, because I have observed talking to people about the ideas of Thomas Reed that people tend to have an extremely Cartesian perspective on the fact that our senses are interpreting Mm -hmm. something in the world. And Reed's point, or one of his points, was your senses are always an interpretation of nature. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, maybe it's not Cartesian, but it's certainly an enlightenment impulse to say, well, if our senses are an interpretation, then we can't know anything at all. And Reed's point was, why? (laughs) Why is that true? Mm -hmm. And Kant had this idea of, his phrase was the Dinge an sich, right? The thing in itself, what Mm -hmm. you're referring to as reality, Mm -hmm. more or less. We might have certain critiques of Kant, but he did believe that human beings could gain knowledge, even though you might never reach that Dinge an sich. So I want to lay out that premise that Reed has, which is just because your senses are an interpretation doesn't mean you don't know anything. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's there's an awful lot there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Well, first, let me start with the Enlightenment view here, which actually is the foundation of modern empirical science. And that would be David Hume. So he's the tail end of that Cartesian project you've referenced. So what did Hume say? Well, Hume said, everything in your mind is just an impression in your mind. So he's just taking these impressions. Those are the things we know. Now, where did they come from? He's not going to assume anything. He's just going to take those impressions and say, all right, now, what are the consequences then if this picture is right? So the ideas in my mind are the only thing I can possibly know, that those impressions, those ideas. Right. This goes back to that thing you were saying earlier about the mind being passive. Right. Hume is continuing with Descartes to say, there's stuff that's happening to me. Right. Whereas Reed and Kant are both going to say, no, I'm doing stuff to the world as I'm understanding it. Yes. Anyhow. So Hume has this idea that the world is giving me these impressions. Right. Yes. And and so everybody's going to have the same impression that's seeing the same thing or experiencing the same thing in Hume's view. Now, immediately, you're going to put that together with other impressions and make ideas and things out of it. But that's an interpretation. But the point he wants to start from is... But that first impression, you can't be wrong about it. I mean, you just can't be wrong about that. So that's his assumption. And that's ultimately the assumption that the testing hypothesis view of science is built on, is that all I'm doing is getting back to that impression. I'm just doing the measurement here of just the impression. So... Modern science is really a continuation of that empirical 
Enlightenment project. Now, both Reed and Kant are responding to Hume and disagreeing with him, and they both, in a sense, make a similar move, and that both of them are arguing that the mind is active, that the mind plays a key role. There isn't such a thing as an impression that's done to us. So in Kant's case, it's just things like space and time. And in his mind, his picture is the mind is like a lens that the sensation is interacting with, and then the phenomena, the way it appears, that's a combination then of what the mind did in combination with the sensation. Now, in Kant's view, we can't really know the thing in itself at all. So, in his view, we know the phenomenon, and that's the science part of it. Now, the difference here is Reed isn't quite so skeptical as Kant. He's arguing that these sensations are a language that God has built into us. Reed is explicitly a Christian, and he's saying, well, God created the world. He's rational. The world is rational. He created us as rational. Why would we deny that the language, the sensations we're giving us, are giving us, in some sense, reliable information about the world? Right. That's Reed's move. Right. Now, Reed's very clear that we can't ultimately know everything. But we do have this language now that we can use to learn and learn more through experience. And then by gaining greater skill and with greater experience, we can come to greater understanding of how the world works. Right. One of the key things about Reed is Reed is talking about philosophy explicitly may bring us back around. But one of the things that he's doing is he's critiquing the folks, particularly Hume, Kant isn't around for Reed to interact with quite yet. But Reed is interacting with these other philosophers, Descartes and Hume, who have philosophical ideas that will have consequences for science, even though Reed is talking about philosophy primarily. And one of his key arguments is that when we go about thinking about how we do science, it has to be consistent with the rest of human life. And one of the observations that he makes is people rely on English or French or German or whatever language you please and those languages are what he calls artificial languages, in that a dog describes an animal that is also described by the Spanish word perro, right? So in some ways, the connection between the language and the thing that it's pointing to is arbitrary. But Reed contends that there's natural language, which our sensations are part of that, right? How we perceive sights and smells and all of these things. And he just makes the point that it's kind of insane that these people go on using French and German when you can 
be explicitly lied to <laughs> in French and German, but you want to throw out sensations, the natural language, as soon as you realize that you are confused about some stuff. Because a lot of this is coming in the wake of the Copernican Revolution. Where do you want to go from here? We can talk about that, or we can continue <laughs> okay. on some of these issues. Well, well, let's do Copernicus. And be, because the Copernican Revolution, I would argue, in my view, is probably the most fundamental part of the entire Gutenberg project. And here's why, is what the Copernican Revolution is doing and examining is everybody for 1,500 years had accepted Ptolemy's view of the world, that the sun goes around the earth, the earth is sitting still in the middle of the universe. Suddenly now, Copernicus is, is questioning that. And, well, first, why would anybody question it? I mean, just do the experiment yourself. Get up in the morning, watch the sun come up. What do you see? You are standing on a stationary planet watching the sun move. That's the experience of every human being on the planet. How in the world can somebody now say that isn't the way it's working? Right. What's at stake here? is what we had, where we started of a lens. And basically the Ptolemaic lens is starting from the assumption that the most fundamental tool I have for understanding the world is my sensations. What do I see? Copernicus is coming along and questioning that which is really pretty bizarre. Why would Copernicus even raise an issue here? And he raised the issue because as he looked at the Ptolemaic system, which was put together one orbit at a time, one planet at a time, that some of the planets actually overlap their orbits. Well, that can't happen because sooner or later they're going to collide. And so he called it a monstrosity. And he said, the creator of the universe certainly did not build a monstrosity. So that was his clue that there was something wrong with this lens. And, and that's what's critically important, is everybody's going to truck along with that lens and never question it un until something comes up forcing you to. Right. And so in Copernicus's case then, what he really did is, what would the orientation of the sun and the planets be if we moved our focus to the sun? What would that look like? So he's imagining, he's intellectually moving, and then saying, what would it look like? Well, um, it's that intellectual claim that the, the intellectual integrity of his new lens, it's just so much better. It makes more sense. Right. Things fit together better. But you can see the problems here now 
if Ptolemy and Copernicus are going to have a conversation, is they're both watching the sunrise. Ptolemy is going to say, see, the sun moves. Copernicus is going to say, no, it doesn't. The earth is turning. Well, if you're going to talk about those facts, you never can sort this out because they're just going to talk past each other because a key fact for one is virtually irrelevant for the other one. So it's raising this issue in a way that I think is incredibly helpful because um, nothing can be really simpler than the Copernican question of how six balls go around each other. Right, right. So the Copernican revolution, which the students take a year to read Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Descartes, and Newton, and what you're seeing is you're seeing individuals move from one paradigm to another paradigm. Now, that's incredibly important because I, first in science, because I would argue that science is not testing these hypotheses. Science is actually coming up with correct theories and deriving correct theories. It's about theories, not about facts. And the other piece of this is then, notice that with regard to everything in life, it raises the issue, how are we even going to discuss this and figure out who's right and who's wrong? And so, as I say, the paradigm here of the Copernican Revolution, in my view, is so beautiful because it's just six balls going around right. each other. Well, in some ways, it's just six balls, right? Because <laughs> yeah. the Copernican Revolution is more than a change of the ideas about how do we think about the stars. Right. It's also a change of... What are we even doing when we do science? Right, absolutely. And so, I mean, let's see, there's several things I want to say here. Sure. Well, the first is, let's look at some of the facts. Well, in Ptolemy's view, the Earth sits in the center of the universe. It doesn't move. It's not a planet. The planets are going around the Earth. In Copernicus's view now, the, the Earth is a planet, just like the rest of them. So what's the fact here? And the point is you can't just use your senses and solve that question. It's all part of your lens, your theory that's putting it all together. The theory is the lens. So that's the first part. The second part I want to say is Everyone, modern scientists, modern philosophers, everybody agrees that the Copernicans founded modern science. Well, so the question is, what did they do? Right. Well, from what I've just said, where would virtually all modern empirical scientists be philosophically at the point in time with the Copernicans? The answer is, well, they're going to be with the Catholic Church here against the Copernicans. Why? Because the Catholic Church was saying, well, look, there's two theories here, but you don't have any empirical evidence separating these two. Yeah. Well, no, Copernicus didn't, but he was claiming on other grounds his theory was true. 
So I find it really ironic that virtually every scientist, including me, before I ran into Polanyi, would have actually sided with the Catholic Church against the Copernican. That's, that's how distinctive their version of science was compared to our modern version of right, science. Right. It is interesting how human nature and even human sinfulness enters into this whole question, and that is why there's this distortion, mm-hmm. right? Part of the reason why you get a Locke who is thinking about how to do science and uh, epistemology, which is the study of how we know things, he is very enchanted by Newton, Mm-hmm. As everyone was. Because, well, and even Reed was. Right. Well, New- <laughs> Newton comes along and is the nail in the coffin for Ptolemaic theory. Yeah. He does some math, and he's just an ingenious scientist. And everybody thinks that he's this rock star. And Locke walks away from Newton because Newton believed like Lucretius, like modern scientists, that he's an atomist, right? Well, they call it corpuscles. Corpuscles, (laughs) right? But yes, he believes that there are atoms. And Locke has a similar idea about ideas, right? You have the idea of blue or the idea of wooden. You have these various little packets of information and you combine those together to get this idea. That just speaks to me to this human tendency to kind of allow for your hero worship to create the laurels on which you're resting. Because Locke is part of this tradition, he's leading back to Hume and saying your mind is passive, Mm -hmm. right? Things are happening to your mind. And in the transition somewhere, you lose that fundamental Copernican insight of, well, no, we got to step back and think about the theories, which is a more fundamental revolution than the earth is a planet, etc. So it's very hard to sustain this philosophical project that is constantly negotiating these theories because there's a lot of unsettledness there. Mm -hmm. Whereas if all you're having to do is look at facts, it's a much more relatively easy sort of project. Yeah. um, Well, let me back up and just say Locke is essentially looking at that empirical way of doing science. And by that, I mean, in the case of Newton here, what we're going to do is we're going to take a whole system and we're going to break it down into little parts. And we're going to come to understand all the parts. And once we understand all the parts, we understand the whole. Right. Okay. So this idea of lenses is the opposite of that view. The parts are important, but it's the relationship of the parts that are what's important, more so than just the parts themselves. Right. And so that's the distinction in a way. So there is some irony here in that, yes, Newton completed this paradigm shift, but he did it in a way 
that reduced it to parts. And through his parts, he was able to claim that theory was true. And that's what everybody locked into as how we're going to do science. We're going to break it down into its little parts. Right. And it's ironic that there's a sense in which that's totally misunderstanding what Copernicus's real move was. Right. And that's Polanyi's view. And what's interesting about that is my background is in ecology. And ecology also rejects Newtonian science. Why? Because ecology deals with the, the relationship of parts in a whole. Mm-hmm. And so ecology is naturally going to, again, be about these holes. It's going to be about theories. Right. And so that's a major distinction here in how you look at science. And I would argue that the biggest shift I had to make was realizing that science doesn't deal with these facts. It's really dealing with how you're going to make judgments about what lens, what theory is the better. Because it's not a simple thing. You can't just go do an experiment and prove one theory true and one theory false. It doesn't work that way. And that's an incredibly important lesson, not only for science, but all of us, is two people with two different lenses on with regard to any subject you're never going to solve this by throwing facts at them. Right. Anyway. You need to take that philosophical step back and be able to talk about those lenses themselves. Right. And you have to, at a point, be willing to try somebody else's lens on. What would it mean if what you're saying is true? Right. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's so the fundamental question you have to... Right. Adopt is. So, all the people that had a Ptolemaic view of the world, you had to be willing to say, hmm, I'm at least going to try this on and see Mm -hmm. if it makes a lot of things come into focus better than Mm -hmm. the other system. If you're not willing to do that, then you're not interested in pursuing the truth. Right. Right. And, and that fundamentally, that's what science is. Yeah, it's that it's that lens judgment, right? Not the fact gathering, right? You said earlier that ecology has a certain bias towards the relationships between parts, rather than focusing on the parts and then deriving the whole, as it were, from the parts. Mm-hmm. Do you think there are different specialties within science that tend to have a better perspective on how to do science because of those sorts of things? Well, I live in one little portion of the world, as do we all. Uh And yeah, ecology is mine. But I would say even in ecology, most ecologists are studying the parts just like Newton. I see. Look how we describe all of science from the beginning. It's this testing hypotheses. It's right. about the facts. It's about the parts. Right. So this view of science that we get in starting in grade school, yeah. it's all about those parts. Yeah. And so 
I suspect that it's probably dominant in all sciences, although, again, I'm an ecologist, so I can't comment on a lot of other specialties. Do you think there's any hope for an adoption of this view of science that you're proposing rather than the modern view of science reigning? Well, it's, of course, possible. I mean, that's the point. There have been revolutions in the views about what science is and how to do it. Mm -hmm. So that still continues. I mean, the irony has been that both science and philosophy of science have viewed it as a positive that they no longer talk to each other after about (laughs) Descartes. So, I mean, that's ultimately the problem. And this was one of the issues for me. I mean, I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to specialize in it. But when I started to read this Polanyi book, Polanyi is questioning what is science. And all of a sudden it's dawning on me, well, wait a minute. That's a philosophy question. And I don't have any background in that. I I don't have any tools. I see. And so that's going to have to go 180. Right. In other words, philosophers are going to have to talk to scientists in big, broad terms. They haven't been doing this for like 500 years. So, Right. (laughs) But that's largely what it would take. Yeah. To adopt this, what we have described as the Copernican revolution, to adopt the lens judgment versus fact accumulation. We could call that a philosophical frame of mind. The irony is there's a lot of philosophy that is also stuck mm-hmm. in that same place. Yeah, and there's also another big piece that I think is fundamentally important, and that is in our traditional view of science, by following this method of hypothesis testing, science comes up with greater objectivity and certainty in their knowledge. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they wear the robes of authority. They are the experts about what's true here in society. And one of the implications of this Polanyi or Copernican revolution in science is science is no different than any other endeavor. Right. It's an art. Right. There is no method of science. It's an art. So that's another implication of this revolution. And, you know, scientists are human. They don't want to give up the pedestal when they've got it. Sure. Well, for somebody to get funding and to be peer-reviewed and that sort of stuff, Mm -hmm. I mean, that sort of stuff does require resources. Mm -hmm. And we've talked before about, not on mic, but we've had the conversation about specialists, which... You know, when specialization becomes the platform on which you wear those robes, that's not a good thing. But that's different from the fact that certain institutions allow people who have spent a lot of time developing their ability to do this kind of art Mm. with the resources to be able to do that sort of thing. But fundamentally, what that person is doing is no different from, I guess we'd call them amateurs, Mm -hmm. who don't have those resources. But there's a difference of resources, not necessarily of skill 
mm-hmm. right? That you can have somebody who is interested in judging the lenses of science or of philosophy or whatever, and they can be just as skilled and have the right perspective that that's what we're even doing than the person who has those sort of resources. Yeah. Well, I I mean, you can have actually 30 years real experience or one year's experience relived 30 times if you're just going to look at yeah. You know, look at things the same way, just continue to do right. the same method one after the other. Right. Well, I mean, it is of great benefit in dealing with particular questions mm. to be able to have the resources to investigate those questions, right? Yeah. The example that I have used before is I want somebody else to read all of Thomas Jefferson's correspondence, mm-hmm. right? I don't need to do that. I will trust that there's somebody who's very competent at understanding what's going on and putting that together Mm -hmm. and save me the trouble of having to go to whatever university has the stockpile of all his correspondence. Mm -hmm. And being able to access that stockpile, how Mm -hmm. do you answer that question? Well, you got to go read the guy, right? Right. And, And the same thing is true of, you know, if you had a physicist who is genuinely interested in the truth, Maybe you do need a Hadron Collider to deal with some of those questions. You can't know some stuff that you might be able to know if you don't have a Hadron Collider. Right. Well, yeah, there's another element that I think we've got to bring in here Yeah. to essentially delineate the two views of science, yeah. the traditional versus this new Copernican thing. And that is, if you look at what we would call the progress of science and its marriage with technology— Is all our technological advances really? If you look at them, most all of them are of the Newtonian sort, meaning they're dealing with parts. You've taken something apart. So, for example, go all the way back to Smith's pin factory example. Where if you try to design a, a machine to make a pin, that's a horrendous task. You never could do it. But once you divide making pins into 18 different repetitive steps, now you can build a machine right. to do each one of those particular steps. Right. Again, this is forcing science into that, reducing it into parts right. and, and away from the whole. Right. So one of the major factors of why science is on the pedestal today and why it's this reductionistic kind of approach is that's how you get technological stuff. That's how you get toys. That's how you get all this stuff is you're not going to get any of that stuff by testing these theories directly. So anyway, that's another major impetus Mm -hmm. we've got to get in here. Yeah. That's really impeding what I would consider to be a more true theory of science. Right. Because there's a lot of history between Copernicus and now that was, I mean, let's take the atom bomb, right? Mm -hmm. Of there's a war on and we need to find a more effective whatever in order to do that. This method by which we break things down into parts is going to help us pursue those ends. Yeah. 
one of the famous essays that C.S. Lewis writes is learning in wartime. Mm -hmm. And the whole question is, well, you know, we could die tomorrow. Why are we wasting our time learning English literature? Right. And C.S. Lewis's point is, well, you could die tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what's really important here? Yeah. And for science, there is real value to that lens judging of science because the truth is important, Mm -hmm. right? Dealing with reality as it is is important. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what the modern scientific perspective does, it's not concerned about truth. Mm -hmm. It's concerned about practicalities, right. technology. I mean, this would get us into like a and things like that, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> so. uh, yeah, but actually, well, let me get you into, into Polanyi. I'm just reading sure, a different sure. Polanyi book now. What Polanyi is dealing with was, was science during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Well, he's writing World War II, but it's coming out of the Cold War. And here was the distinction. In the West, we want to make a distinction between pure science and applied science. Mm-hmm. And what I've been talking about is largely pure science. Right. But what's interesting is the communists, the USSR, they took a different approach towards science. Mm. The purpose of science is for utility. Mm-hmm. So... All of science is going to be aimed at utility, Mm -hmm. making things better. So there is no such thing as pure science in that kind of view. Right. Well, what's interesting is that's not really different from the National Science Foundation's perspective now, is when you submit a grant, you need to talk about what the potential benefits are here for society. Right. And that's kind of interesting to me is that's a similar move to what the Soviets did. Well, I mean, there is a (laughs) sussing out the causes and effects here exactly. Mm -hmm. Maybe trickier than what we can afford, but there is a general move in the West towards that more utilitarian bent Mm -hmm. after the Enlightenment, right? Mm -hmm. So... It is not surprising, even though it is maybe not tracing each step right. is a little complicated. It is not surprising that that's the direction that everyone went. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I mean, Marx is certainly within that line. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it is fascinating to me. Let's go back to the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. You have... So much of the story of the Old Testament is God saying to people, I'm going to take care of you. And then people going, you know, I found a better option. (laughs) Cain doesn't trust that God's going to, well, what God says is, I will avenge you. Mm -hmm. So Cain doesn't care that justice will be served. He wants to not die. So Mm -hmm. he builds a city with walls and things. And that is an extremely human tendency to want to do the sort of obvious thing that's going to protect me and keep me safe. And that's true 
technologically in terms of the things that we make, but it's also true intellectually. We do Mm -hmm. the same thing just psychologically. This is why it's so hard to get to a place where you can start thinking about the lenses that you're seeing through and think about those in a philosophical kind of way, because those assumptions that you have are so comfortable. Well, you believe they're true. Right. Yeah, you aren't going to doubt them. Right. And so it really takes a kind of vulnerability, Mm -hmm. both to imagine what would a different alternative be, or to allow somebody to suggest an alternative to you. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, it takes a real vulnerability to trust God ultimately. Right. And so it's not the same phenomena, but Mm -hmm. they're not totally dissimilar sorts of phenomena. Yeah, no, that's correct. And that's where the human frailty question is sort of embedded the whole way down in this discussion. Right. Well, and it comes back to remember the example I gave about the thunderstorm in Yellowstone is some people couldn't see it. Well, why couldn't they see it? Well, it seems to me that that's the picture we also get of human beings in society at the time of Jesus and the Bible. Yeah. They can't see it. Right. Uh, in part because they don't want to see it. Right. And so that's one of the implications of this as well for scientists or even everybody on the street. You know, that's a piece of this lens thing is your motivation can be such that you don't want to see Right. What's true. Right. And that has implications for both science and everyday life and certainly for Christianity. Right. Right. And, you know, that gets us into another favorite theme of Gutenberg of Kierkegaard. Right. (laughs) That's in part why the science curriculum is taking up as much space as it is. Because I've talked to other alumni and who have said the science curriculum is my favorite part of the curriculum. Oh, because you love Copernicus. It's like, no, I don't care. <laughs> you know, what we're doing in the science curriculum is we're understanding how human beings know things. Right. And yes. we're looking at examples of that happening with Copernicus granted. Mm-hmm. And we're even entering into some of the minutia uh-huh. that you know, is part of science. It's why the Hadron Collider is important. We're getting into these actual arguments and actually looking at reality and stuff. But at the end of the day, the real value here is looking at human beings and how do they deal with reality and what are the impediments to them dealing with reality and how do we gain those tools that you were lacking at the beginning of your journey Mm -hmm. To be able to stop trying to look for facts and Mm -hmm. start judging the different lenses through which you can see things. Right. Yeah, and to me, I mean, that's the heart of the Gutenberg Project. I mean, every great book we read, more likely than not, has a different lens from you. Right. So, I mean, it's really helping to build the skills of understanding a lens that's different than you, being able to put yourself in that other person's lens right. and look at it through their perspective. Yeah, That's absolutely essential. And I would argue 
It's absolutely essential when we come to the Bible to do that. We got to get in the heads of the apostles and the people that wrote the text. Right. You know, we need that kind of skill and imagination to be able to do it, to make progress, to understand what Christianity is fundamentally about. Right. And as you were saying earlier, the process of science, Mm -hmm. science is more describing the sorts of things that we're studying with the theories that we're thinking about. But the process is the same. Yeah. Whether you're doing, whether you're looking at more natural phenomena in science or you're thinking about, you know, you're you're taking that step back philosophically and sort of dealing with the particular issues for things, right? It's the same. Yeah. And so, so for example, how you interpret the Bible is the same as how you would do something in science. The difference is, in science, the subject matter is the natural world. Right. When you're reading the Bible, it's about the Bible. Right. But how you know in science, or how you know from reading the Scripture, that's the fundamental most important point that I came to. And in fact, my whole conversion centers on that sort of a perspective and coming to that realization that, you know, how we know stuff in science is no different than how I know stuff in the Bible or how I know stuff in everyday life. Yeah, Using the scientific method have no claim to greater certainty and objective than anybody else. That's the lesson. That's the ultimate lesson. Right. There is a kind of thinking about the world that is centered around evaluating the different options on the table. And the better scientist is the person who can make a better evaluation Mm -hmm. (laughs) concerning the natural world. Mm-hmm. But all human knowledge really ultimately is a matter of making those evaluations mm-hmm. between the competing options. Right. And, you know, that requires wisdom. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the Gutenberg science curriculum is about trying to help people gain mm-hmm. some wisdom. <laughs> yes. And there's, of course, the other part. And that is how much God allows you to be able to see. Yeah. Yeah. Is that's an important process. Yeah. In in this as well. Right. Is the Spirit of God in us transforming us. Yeah. Making us open to the possibility of seeing the world differently with a new set of lenses. Yeah. Well, and when that's not operative, what can science be but mm-hmm. the easy, you know, cane-like is a bit much probably, but mm-hmm. that easy, like, oh, I just look for facts. I yeah, just well, this that's to- one move. Or And we see things like you're going to accept certain kind of assumptions. Yeah. The world is material. Yeah. You know. We're going to look for patterns in the material world. And that's what we're going to do because that's what reality is. Right. So There aren't other options on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charlie, I think this has been an incredible conversation. I'm so glad that we got an opportunity to <laughs> talk bigger picture about 
the science curriculum and the philosophical underpinnings of that. Do you have any more comments before we wrap up here that you think are any sort of last words or lingering thoughts that you think are important at this juncture? Uh, no, I think so. I can't think of anything. We covered a lot of territory. Oh, my and- goodness. <laughs> and I am sure that, I mean, this 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 was wider ranging than mm-hmm. most of our podcast episodes. So if anybody has questions or needs clarification, you can send that feedback to podcast at gutenberg.edu. Once again, thank you so much for coming and talking about this, Charlie. Yeah, you're welcome, Gil. I enjoyed it. And we'll be back in a little bit to look at things in this philosophical way that we hope is part of the core of the Gutenberg Project. Mm -hmm.